your Division II champions, Grand Valley State. Congratulations to the Lakers. For the sixth time in program history, they are the national champions. Grand Valley has its third national championship in four years. Grand Valley State celebrating a national championship in Division II. It's the Ankara Podcast, presented by the Grand Valley Sports Network. What's up, Laker Nation? Welcome back to another edition of the Anchor Up Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 1st. We're into the month of October already. Jake Levy, Tim Knott here with you. Got another great episode coming your way here today. We talked to Doug Doc Woods, Laker Hall of Famer, the longtime softball coach, the guy who basically started the athletic training program. Here we'll get to that in a little bit. We've also got some discussions coming your way. The NCAA released their return to play guidelines for winter sports. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about the COVID cases in the NFL. We'll talk about the playoff baseball format here this week. Baseball overload coming your way. It feels like March Madness here in September slash October. And, of course, the NBA Finals underway as well. So a lot to get to. Tim, first of all, how you doing? Great, Jake. Great. Uh, a lot of sports going on right now. A lot of sports that you don't normally have. Uh, you know, NBA, baseball, um, going on at the same time. Hockey just ended. Uh, the Tampa Lightning won the Stanley Cup. Uh, college football is ramping up, and so, you know, it was a, a long time coming uh, in, t- in terms of the sports world, but uh, now we're s- seeing a lot of uh, sports in action. Yeah, certainly. Who would have thought you'd be playing the NBA Finals in October when usually this is when the season is starting to begin, so certainly a different vibe for the uh, basketball atmosphere this time of year. But let's talk about what affects the student-athletes at Grand Valley State the most of the news that broke this week. The NCAA releasing their return-to-play guidelines for winter sports. And one of the big things that jumps out to me, Tim, is the requirement of three tests a week. That's definitely probably the biggest note that they put in there in terms of the rejoin process and how they're going to execute through the winter. But the good news is putting out that guideline gets us one step closer to playing on the hardwood. Well, it does. It does. Uh, you know, you're, you're – those winter teams want to compete, and uh, I know schools want to get those winter sports in action with practice and play, uh, and they, they did say three times a week. Um, now, it really hasn't been laid out. Is that Monday, Wednesday, Friday? Is that, uh, you know, what what's the schedule? Is it is it one day before every contest? A lot of that has still yet to be released, um, but it's good that they have these protocols in place, and now schools can try to figure out how to implement them and uh, move forward. And the important thing is with a lot of conferences, especially Division Two, Division Three, saying they're not going to play until January 1 anyway. This now gives you a full two months to really parcel through what the return to play will look like, make sure every school is on board, and give you that process you need to start fleshing out what a season will look like because, as we know, especially in the GLIAC, it's going to be nothing but conference opponents when that winter season hits. Well, it, it is, and you know, it, it, there's going to be some schools that quite simply – find out they can't do it either. I mean, yep. and, and so leagues are going to have to, you know, put some time stamps on, hey, you got to let us know if you're going to play. I know the, the GLIAC, we're still waiting for a schedule to, to be released for basketball. Not every school, I don't, I don't think, is going to be able to adhere to the um, plan in terms of three times a week. So leagues are going to have to let, you know, schools are going to have to let leagues know, hey, we're in or out. I mean, because, right. and, and there's going to be, there's going to be a number of schools that just simply say, we can't afford it and we're not going to play this year. And uh, so the leagues need to know uh, to get those league schedules out, to get things scheduled. I mean, you know, we've talked about this. There's, there's not a basketball schedule yet, and 
we're three months from tipping off the season. I mean, travel plans need to be played. Hotel reservations need to be made. Need to be made. Buses need to be reserved. There's a lot that goes into travel, that, and that's normally taken care of during the summer. Well, now you're in a time crunch where you're going to be practicing and laying out plans for travel and playing basketball games. That's a great point. I want to dive into that. But first, we remind you the Anchor Up podcast is brought to you by Metro Health, the official sports medicine provider of GVSU Athletics, your health our passion. And yeah, that's a great point by you, Tim. When you look at all of the decisions that need to be made, all the reservations, all of the hustle and bustle that's going to go from what used to be a, like you said, three or four month process of slowly figuring things out, getting one thing settled, then another. Now you're going to have to almost juggle four different things, travel, hotels, buses, who you're playing, how many games you're playing, what the conference standings are going to look like, what the requirements are to get into the NCAA tournament, what's that going to like. There's going to be so many different things now that you have to figure out all within about six weeks. And that's just on the basketball side alone. For men's and women's basketball, we're talking about, what about you and I? You're you're going to have basketball, swimming and diving, volleyball, soccer. You're literally going to have 18 of 20 sports playing between the months of January 1 and, let's say, June 1. And so there's schools out there, and j- just from our perspective, you know, in terms of, of the juggling act that's going to be going on, in terms of, you know, we've talked about it, there could be a weekend where, <laughs> where at the end of the basketball season you could be hosting a volleyball match in the morning, basketball games at 1 and 4, um, soccer outside, football is going to you know, Im- implement some scrimmages and, and game-like situations. And we didn't even touch on spring sports yet. Right. And so, and so there's so much that goes into it uh, across the board in you know, athletic training, facilities, how are, how are schools going to do this, and there's a lot to be worked through. Yeah, you mentioned us, and obviously you mentioned the others as well. The support staff is an important aspect of that as well, not just the coaches and players figuring out what they're going to do, but you need to, as an athletic department as a whole, come up with a plan, and that's so hard until you know what is happening, but at least the NCAA giving us that return-to-play mandate and what their parameters are give us some type of idea that we're heading in that direction. Yeah, and you know, um, in terms of uh, in the state of Michigan, I know, there's weekly updates on what's allowed in terms of fans and, and, and players, masks, you know, who's going to wear masks. And so there's weekly updates and I- information getting out. Sometimes it makes it worse because one week it's one thing, another week it's, a, you know, a totally different uh, statement, you know, in terms of the protocols. And so I know the coaches and student athletes, they just keep trudging through this and, and, and practicing right now. And it's great to see them outside. Yeah, it's great to see everybody getting back to practicing, doing what they love to do. And since we're talking about the NCAA return to play, and that's along the lines of COVID, let's go into what happened in the NFL this week. The Tennessee Titans come down with, I believe it's now 10 confirmed cases of COVID, including four players. And so their facility shut down till Saturday. The good news is nobody on the Vikings, the team that they played, tested positive, which means that despite playing a contact sport, the other parameters that they are doing are working. Yeah, and that's that's great news. It's it's great visually for people to see, you know, that, that you can actually do these things. It's great to get out there that you can play a game and, and you know, it's not being just spread, you know, crazy, you know, throughout the each team. Um, and the protocols that they've put in place are, are working. Um, I know they've 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 talked about possibly Monday night game now being played and and so uh, it's great to see that they're continuing to move forward and people are you know con- continuing to uh, have the protocols in place but they're not just you know canceling things like, like crazy like they did you know er- early on 
And I think that's where this ties back into the NCAA, ties back into GVSU athletics, is that, look, if you're testing everybody three times a week in the winter, you're going to be hard-pressed to believe there's not going to be a few positive cases throughout Division II, throughout the GLIAC. So when that happens, what is your contingency plan? How do you operate after a positive test? How do you operate with the teams they've played? How do you do contract chasing? All of that is going to come into play. And I think what the NFL's done so far looks like a good model because they're the ones traveling around. Baseball did a great job of it as well. Of course, they got hit early with the Marlins on the opening weekend and the Cardinals had their issue. But they sorted it out. Not only did they figure it out, they got to the point where now we're playing postseason baseball. So both of those leagues that have traveling teams going from one site to the other and playing and traveling amidst this pandemic have been able, for the most part, so far to come out unscathed. Well, I think it's great for the the mentally for people to realize that uh, we can move forward. We we can. There are protocols and, and systems in place that 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 we can implement, and 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 we can still do these do these games. We can still compete. We can uh, continue to move forward. And I think that's a big thing. Not just shutting everything down because there's one case. Well, we know there's going to be one case. I mean, we know there's going to be another case. But, but how do you contain it, and how do you continue to move move forward? Because it's not going away. We've, we've talked about it. it's going to be out there. Wait, you know, uh, for for um, the the uh, uh, vaccines, and so how can we continue to move forward and proceed as a as a country? The Anchor Up podcast presented in part by NovaCare. Discover the power of physical therapy, the official physical therapy provider of GVSU Athletics, and by PNC Bank, the official bank of GVSU Athletics, PNC Bank, for the achiever in you. I touched on it a bit there, but talking about baseball, MLB, hitting the postseason. This is a postseason unlike any other. First of all, 16 teams, never mind the fact the Phillies didn't make it, but 16 teams <laughs> getting into the playoffs more than ever, and you have these best-of-three series all at one site. It's a very unique thing, but the coolest thing, Tim, to me, is especially on Wednesday when you had starting at noon, oh. every hour on the hour for the next eight hours a baseball game is starting, and not only a baseball game, a playoff game. It feels like March Madness oh, out I here. love it. I love it. Um, you know, in terms of... We, we we talked about you could literally have uh, f four eight eight four in terms of games being played four consecutive days of of, of baseball you know some series going to that third game and I think it's awesome and, and the, the the three game series we talked about it you know is such a everybody has a great one and two starter I mean everybody in Major League Baseball even the teams that don't make the postseason play they have guys who can shut you down as a one and two starter and so these. Uh, series that are so even and the teams are so like we were looking at the at the matchups a 1-8 matchup is I mean that's a that's a still a flip of the coin absolutely I, th I think for me the starting pitching is going to determine these three game series once you move on to five seven game series like the rest of it will be then bullpens as usual in the postseason exactly. come into play quite a bit yes. but when you're just a Burner three-game series. You got to win two games before the other team does. Those frontline starters are going to be so 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 important. And you want to get those series over because there's not going to be any days off in terms right. of between the three and uh, be, between when you finish your uh, f first round matchup and when that second round matchup starts. So you know it 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 it's like a race to the finish, but it, it's a it's an intriguing race. Um, it's just a sprint, um, and and I I love watching it. 
And the way the uh, seeding is set up, too, it's very interesting because you look at Oakland facing Chicago. That's the two versus the seven, but Oakland only won one more game this year than <laughs> no, the White I Sox know. did. So even as you look at the seedings and you look at the way that those are broken down, that's not even super telling as well as to who the clear-cut favorite should be, and we saw that in game one in Oakland. Well, yeah, and, you know, in terms of the the matchups, I thought are very intriguing because you, you do have that. You have those teams that... You know, depending on who you played and who and what division you were in, dictated your schedule. So you could have, you know, you were just above 500 uh, with an extremely difficult schedule where some teams might have been 10 games over 500, but really hadn't played anybody that had a record over 500. Absolutely. And so that's how that seeding comes in, and and you know, the home field advantage, and then the second round where they're going to selected sites, and so you're not going to have the fit. So there is no home field advantage. There's no roar of the crowd. You know, except for the uh, piped-in music. And so, <laughs> you know, it's just there's so many interesting aspects and that are going into these playoffs, and, and yet the Yankees come out and score 12 <laughs> runs last night and just bombs away. Well, I, th I think it was you. We've talked about this off-air. DJ LeMahieu, is, is he oh. a Hall of Famer? Oh, I, my I gosh, mean, he, that guy. What he did in game one of this series, he is now an unbelievable. In both leagues, the former LSU Tiger has been fantastic in both the National League and the American League. He, uh, you said it a couple of weeks ago, I think. We kind of just laughed it off. But as he continues to perform, uh, he's making a pretty strong case in these 10 years that he's got a chance to be a bona fide Hall of Famer. He, he, you know, he really is. He's a product of Birmingham Brother Rice High School in Michigan. He committed to Notre Dame, and then when Paul Maneri got the LSU job, D.J. LeMahieu followed him to LSU um, and had a great career there. Um, and, you know, he was in Colorado. So, really, you know, Colorado – you know, they're in that spot where, you know, they're in the playoffs and they had great teams, but you just don't hear a lot about them. They have that West Coast bias almost in terms of nobody gets to see him play. And he just would toil out there and, I mean, had great year after great year. And then as he's moved on to different teams, he's continued to excel. So there's really no there's no area where he, you know, hasn't done well hitting the ball defensively. And now he's, you know, betting leadoff for the Yankees. And I think Colorado, not only do you get the West Coast bias, you kind of get the offensive inflation yeah, bias as right. well because you say, well, yeah, he hit 15 home runs, but, I mean, you know, he plays half his games in right. Denver where the air's so thin, so probably that really equates to only six or seven <laughs> yeah, home right. runs. So you kind of diminish what guys do when they play yeah. in Colorado, but for when him for him to leave there and now here in New York be as good as he's been and continue to impress, that just makes those and old numbers even more outstanding and you you hear about how the guys refer to dj in terms of clubhouse leader shows up doesn't say anything just goes out and does his job leads by example and uh but yet he's a leader on that on that team and everybody looks up to him and like holy smoke you know and and, and you didn't hear that you know eight years ago and it was and yeah dj lemay he was, he, he's a really good player but now he's revered in that locker room as to what he does on the field and with a team so young between Aaron Judge, Glaber Torres, those young guys, to have the steady yeah. veteran who not only can produce on the field but also has that even keel mentality. Now, this baseball season, like we've talked about, different because of the sprint, different because of a three-game series, different for so many reasons. But in a baseball clubhouse, you need older guys that have seen the ups, seen the downs, kind of stay through even because no matter how good you are at the game of baseball, well, Tim, I don't have to tell you this, you're going to fail. Yeah, and you know, and he had that in Colorado. He played on great teams. He played on teams that, were, that weren't that were very good, you know, and, and, and it, 
were not in the postseason runs. He's played on teams that were in postseason runs and advanced in the playoffs. And so he's been in those clutch situations. Um, and, you know, it's, it's fun watching him excel because really nobody knows about D.J. LeMay. You hear about, you know, Judge and, and the other guys in the Yankees. Um, and lo and behold, who ends up uh, leading the way? D.J. LeMahieu. That's right. The Anchor Up podcast brought to you in part by Earhart Construction, the official construction company of the Grand Valley Sports Network, also brought to you by Homewood Suites Grand Rapids. Enjoy all the comforts of home at the only extended stay hotel in downtown Grand Rapids. Well, full disclosure, we record these on Wednesdays to put out on Thursdays. So first of all, today is International Podcast Day, so happy International Podcast Day to you, Tim. You as well. You're doing a great job. Uh, I've enjoyed doing this and look forward to the future podcast schedule. It, it certainly has been fun. You know, like you mentioned, as the uh, spring sports and the winter sports start piling on, we're going to have a lot more actual GVSU Lakers stuff to talk about during these podcasts. But uh, these first few weeks have been so much fun, and no matter how busy we get we promise you laker nation we're not going anywhere the anchor up podcast will uh, still find a way to come to your phone computer however you listen on thursdays but i say all that to go to the fact that the nba finals start as we record this tonight by the time you hear this tomorrow the first game will already have been played so this is a free and clear we have not seen who wins game one so tim i want to ask you heat Versus Lakers, what do you expect from the series? Well, I think it's going to be a great series. I mean, it's been so much fun watching Miami uh, just continue. You know, Jimmy Butler said when they went to the bubble and at, at Disney, look, we can win this thing. And I, everybody just missed it. They are like, yeah, whatever. You know, J- Jimmy Butler, he's just, t- you know, talking again. And the, the Heat, they have no chance. But I'll tell you what, that team, and I think Eric Spolster does an unbelievable job of coaching those guys. Uh, Jimmy Butler, what a leader, you know, in terms of, doing what needs to be done for that Miami Heat team. And they've had, you know, it, it's tough to kind of keep track of all the Kentucky guys that come out over the years. I mean, and because they're only there for a year. Right. And so you really, you know, and then they go to it. They're always a high draft pick. They go to a, a, usually a bad NBA team. You don't hear about them. But, uh, you know, my, the Miami Heat with uh, Bam and then Tyler Hero, those two guys, they have played so well. And then every piece, in, 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 you look at how the Heat have been constructed, and they just fit together. Yep. They fit together, you know, in terms of, you know, all NBA players. I don't know if they're going to have an all NBA player on their team. I mean, I don't, Jimmy Butler, is he going to be on the all NBA team? I, 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 don't, I, I would don't put know. him on there, but I can't guarantee yeah. it. So, so you look at how, how they're put together, and it's, they're so much fun to watch. They, they, can do, they can slow it down, they can speed it up, they play a ton of zone, which frustrates teams. Um, so I've really enjoyed watching them, and then, and then you just have the you know the Lakers who, who have the big two, and I think it's going to be a fascinating series because it's the team of the Heat against the big two of the Lakers, and who's going to win that battle? You know, are are the are the the group of of Heat five players going to be able to handle? Um, LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And I really like the matchup of Bam Adebayo and Anthony Davis yeah. because I think the Heat did such a good job in that Celtics series of running the high screen and roll and using Bam in so many different ways that he was able to dominate on the low block despite the Celtics being a really deeply right. large and athletic team. But they didn't really have that one guy that you feel like could match up with Bam Adebayo and shut him down. Anthony Davis is that guy, so can he win that battle with Bam Adebayo? And, um, it'll be really interesting to watch for sure. How about how about Tyler Hero and Andre Iguodala? In the fourth quarter, you have Hero, who's what, tw- is he 20 yet? Maybe just turned 20. Okay, and then Andre, who is who has, I think, gone to now five or six straight NBA finals because he was with the Warriors 
and then last year, I'm he not took sure. A gap year, didn't he? Maybe I'm not sure, but but it, it, the age difference between those two, like 17 years between those two individuals, and it's been fun to watch them play. Oh yeah, for sure. I think Andre Iguodala was drafted in '09, so maybe a little bit earlier than that. It was right around when Allen Iverson left the Sixers, but I remember him getting drafted and jumping on, and we'll have our uh, stats have and research, yeah, our, our stats Mitch research Ashcraft, do some guru. research for us and find out, but it was a long time ago for sure. Well, it's almost time to get to our interview with Doc Woods, man. He's got some funny stories, talks about the travel, talks about some trips to the UP, talks about taking over as a softball coach despite having no softball coaching experience <laughs> and best. did an excellent job leading that team to the College World Series. So we're going to get to that in just a moment. But before we do, it's time for our Lakers Spotlight, which is presented by Ziegler Automotive. And this week's Lakers Spotlight is on senior Hannah Grober of GVSU Cross Country. The German native is a two-time USTFCCA All-American in the Cross Country section. She's part of the 2018 National Championship team, of course. Finished third and then second in each of the last two GLIAC championships. She's also a three-time All-Region performer and an academic All-American. So... She was fantastic both in the classroom and on the race course, and that's why she also earned the GLIAC Commissioner's Award for the fall of 2019. And, Tim, I know we publicize when our athletes win a Commissioner's Award, but go, can you at least, for someone who's been around this conference for so long, talk to us, what does the Commissioner's Award mean? Put that into context well, for I, us. Well, you know, it's, it's getting it done in the on the field, running, playing on you know the court, football field, but it's also getting it done in the classroom. And these are tr the true student athletes, and you know, the league kind of, you know, you have the, the Cosida Academic All Americans, and, and the GLIAC wanted to get into how can we highlight because D2 and D3 used to be lumped together for Academic All Americans, and the, the D2 schools really got left out because everybody saw the D3 student athlete as the true student athlete. A lot of people didn't vote for those D2 kids, and so they really got lost in the shuffle. And we didn't have many Academic All Americans for that reason. Uh, league-wide for a number of years and so then they finally split the COSIDA Academic All-American but in, in the meantime the league came up with the Commissioner's Award to highlight these student-athletes uh, that were getting it done in the classroom and on the field and it's been a, a, a great uh, a great addition to the league and it's enabled us to highlight these kids who are doing such an outstanding job in the classroom and on the field and so it was a chance to honor you know six to seven student-athletes league-wide in the spring, winter, and and, and fall, and uh, you know, and, and Grand Valley State leads the way. I mean, we're getting three, we're getting five to six every year in terms of league-wide, and so it's been it's been great for for us and an opportunity to highlight our student athletes. And Hannah, one of the latest congratulations to her. She is our senior spotlight presented by Ziegler Automotive. Okay, well, it's time now to bring in Doc. Doug Woods, the Hall of Famer from the 2019 class. Here he is. All of our interviews brought to you by Alliance Beverage. Coors Light reminding you to drink responsibly. Distributed locally by Alliance Beverage. Okay, here he is, Doc Woods. All right, and with that, we welcome on 2019 GVSU Hall of Fame inductee, Doc Woods, longtime athletic trainer, longtime softball coach, guy that did it all. Doc, how you doing? Good, real good. Glad to have you alongside. So first, you were at Grand Valley for, what, 24 years plus as a softball coach. You also worked as an athletic trainer. But you got started as an athletic trainer, right? Correct, yep. So started in uh, at Grand Valley. Started in 1976. I was their first full-time athletic trainer that was hired uh, at that time. How did you wind up at GVSU? Um, I had uh, a buddy I had from University of Toledo. Uh, 
he was our basketball manager when I was there. Uh, he ended up working at Grand Valley and always kidded with him. And I said, hey, when you're going to hire a full-time trainer, let me know. So uh, I got a call and uh, came up and interviewed. I had been the assistant trainer for five years at University of Toledo working with basketball. And then uh, got a call, came up, interviewed. And uh, within about two weeks later, I was up here. What was it like trying to build basically, I guess, a medical staff from the ground up, right? Because if, if you're the first full-time person, there really probably wasn't much infrastructure. Right. Um, luckily, they had uh, used the uh, residence program out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, Gramec, uh, and they had used those people. But uh, uh, Dr. Tom Johnson, who was a, a team physician at that time, uh, recruited two orthopedic surgeons, uh, and we're going to start. They start Dr. Ron Hookman and Dr. Ray Lovett started the same year I did in '76. So it worked out well that we were uh, starting on the on the same footing. Gotcha. Okay, so you all kind of came in together and got things moving. What was your when you took over here? What did you want to accomplish with that medical staff and that uh, athletic training department here? I just wanted to establish the the organization uh, of getting our athletes seen at proper times and uh, uh, the prevention aspect of it, and then the follow-up with rehab and and care on that. So that took a little bit. The other thing that uh, the charge they gave me was to uh, start an athletic training curriculum for uh, our students, and uh, we worked on that right away. And then in 1978, we had – uh, fully approved athletic curriculum. We were the second one in the state to uh, to garner that. So uh, we worked that way with it to build up our athletic training students. And we also were the first uh, school uh, in Michigan and I think in the country that had uh, female student trainers work with their football team. Way back when, that was unheard of. But uh, we had a limited staff and we were building up. And I went to Jim Harkman, our football coach, and I said, Jim, uh, how about us, our female student trainers work with a football team? And he said, will it help our program? I said, yeah, it will. He said, well, I'm all for it. And we started from there and it, it worked great. That's really awesome. I mean, for me, like I see right now, a lot of the students that come through the athletic training program at Grand Valley are working with our teams, are very heavily involved. It seems like a program that's really been super successful. How cool is that for you to see? Uh, it was great to see it, uh, you know, come to fruition. Uh, and, and just keep building on it. So it, it was excellent. And, uh, you know, a lot of our grads are all over the country in different different positions. I'll give you one story. Uh, one of our uh, grads uh, came, uh, worked an undergrad with us and then did a, a year extra with us and then went to PT school and then got hired by the Women's uh, Tennis Association, Professional Tennis Association. And uh, in the middle of winter, I'm watching a uh, – women's tennis match from Australia and I see Lindsay Davenport they're talking that she's got a hamstring strain and I look at the rap and I said man that looks like how I taught it you know not many people do it that way <laughs> right or wrong not many people do it that way so then I uh, uh, Michelle Gabrion was the uh, person working with them I, I text all right uh, text Michelle or probably that time I emailed her didn't have text I emailed her and said, Michelle, are you in Australia? And she said, yeah. I said, are you work the uh, tennis match? She goes, yeah. I said, uh, did you wrap Lindsay Davenport's uh, uh, hamstring? She goes, just the way you taught me, Doc. So, <laughs> That's awesome. I need to see that. Doc, uh, you know, you were when you started, Joan Bond was also instrumental in the women's program. 
uh, here at Grand Valley State. Talk a bit about your relationship with Joan and, and how, how women's sports became such a force here at Grand Valley State. Well, I came from the University of Toledo. In my last year there, we were just starting women's athletics. Uh, so, when, you know, that is all I had seen of it until I came up here and my eyes were open. I said, holy mackerel, we're competitive and we're going at it. I think at that time, Grand Valley State uh, was the first school uh, in Michigan to offer scholarship, athletic scholarships to women. Uh, so we were a little bit ahead of the curve. Uh, and Joan did a great job uh, organizing that, orchestrating it. And uh, it was great for me to uh, work with our uh, women athletes. So if you came from Toledo and there weren't really female athletes at that time, what was the learning curve like for you when now you had men's and women's sports here at Grand Valley? Well, you know, I, I would think or thought it would be quite a bit different, but uh, our women were competitive. They wanted to get out there and compete just like the men. So it wasn't a real big difference uh, with that. And we set our training room up that uh, first come, first serve, whether it's female athlete or the male, uh, we're going to take care of them. Uh, that, that's one thing Joan always mentioned, you know, in, in talking to her. She mentioned that the, 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 the females in the department, in terms of getting athletic care, Doc Woods always took care of them. So, obviously, kudos to you for building that program uh, the way you did. Um, you know, you were here for some legendary coaches, uh, Harkema, Beck, and then the early days of, of Brian Kelly. Talk a bit about the the Laker football back then in terms of kind of where it started and where it finished when you got done as athletic trainer. Yeah, when I, when I came up and interviewed, I said, where's your football stadium? And they said, uh, it's out there. And I looked and I saw two goalposts sticking up out of the ground. That was our football stadium. We had portable bleachers that we brought out from inside the dome, brought them out for football. Football was done. They went back inside. So that was uh, quite the difference. We didn't have uh, 10 golf carts to haul everything out there. We'd put our water jugs in a big gray tub and push them out to the field and, and uh, uh, go that way with it. But uh, you know what? But when it came down to the athletes competing, there wasn't a big difference. They wanted to compete. They wanted to be out there. Uh, so that was great. And, uh, you know, we worked, uh, worked hard at it in uh, 19, uh, I think it was 1978, we got into the NAIA football playoffs. So it was sort of a neat year because every Monday the ratings would come out and you had to get within the top eight to have a chance. And, uh, uh, you know, Coach Harkin would always go over where we're at. And we did get in. Uh, and the first uh, game we were going to play was out at uh, – uh, Wisconsin lacrosse and at that time we had a bunch of snow on our field I think the first game was in December snow on our field but uh, our old field was the prescription turf field there were heaters underneath and pumps for drainage so uh, but to flip that switch on the heaters cost about uh, $2,000 so they went to President Lovers and said uh, can we get the go on it? They cleared the snow off, turned the heaters on, pumped the water off. It was like we were in the middle of September. It was great practicing. <laughs> uh, we went out to lacrosse, uh, Wisconsin lacrosse. The field was frozen solid. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, we were smart enough to bring tennis shoes with us, and uh, we won that game there. And then we were in the semifinals down uh, playing Elon, North Carolina. Just the opposite. It was a mud bowl. Their field was uh, – bad to begin with and we had sort of torrential downpours 
the night before. It was a mess. They did not want to move it to a turf field. Um, we ended up I using water bottles to squirt the mud off the players' faces, getting nowhere with it. So finally, our, our student manager said, hey, Doc, there's a hose on the sideline. We hooked the hose up, and we had to hose them down when they came in so they could see uh, on that. So that, that, that was quite the, uh, quite the game there. But as you said, the, the, season, you know, the years just progressed, got a little better and a little bigger all the time uh, with that. And then, uh, um, as you said, I worked with uh, Coach Tom Beck and then with, with Brian Kelly. Brian was hired uh, 91 as head coach, same year I got hired to be the softball coach uh, at that time. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, that would be a little bit of a problem, spring football and all that going on. And uh, uh, basically that was a little different situation. We'd tape football, get ready. Uh, I'd go out with softball for our practice. And as soon as I saw the football was done, our practice was over, and I was heading inside to take care of the uh, football team. But it worked out well. Doc, you mentioned it, so let's go that route then. In 91, you become the softball coach here. Number one, how did you – how did that opportunity come about for you? And number two, what was your softball background that had you ready to take that responsibility on? Um, well, one of the reasons was, you know, football coaches love spring football. Athletic trainers, they don't love spring football that much. <laughs> um, you know, I'd done uh, at that time, what, 15 years of spring football. So I was looking for another opportunity. And we had gone through uh, three different softball coaches in three years. So I went to Mike Kowalczyk, the AD, and said, Hey, Mike, I can coach that sport. And he said, yeah, yeah. And uh, sort of laughed it off. The next day he said, uh, could you do it for a year? And I said, yeah, I'll give it a try. My background, not a great background. I had coached my granddaughter's softball team, <laughs> Little League, and my son's uh, baseball team. So my background was not extensive. It was sort of learning on the fly on that. And uh, one great learning opportunity uh, early on down in Florida uh, our one pitcher was struggling a little bit, and I, I'm going to be like Major League Baseball. I'm going to bring in my closer. So I bring in another pitcher, and she promptly gave up two doubles, a home run, and a triple. So I, I learned uh, it's a little bit different game here. You better hang with your pitcher a little longer. Yeah, that's a great point about it. But what were some of the other big lessons you took away early on if you were just kind of figuring this thing out as you went? Because you were super successful pretty quick. Um, I learned quick, you better get good players because we can't rely on my coaching all the time. <laughs> So, uh, no, you just want to you, you want to get some players that love the game, play hard, and uh, have some talent to go along with it, and then uh, try to work that into a cohesive unit. Well, one player that I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, Jen Maxson Rivera, who's currently the assistant coach here, but what a career she had in the circle. Tell us a little bit about getting to work with her and how her uh, career kind of progressed under you. Uh, Jen, Jen was great. I, uh, uh, you know, had a letter from Jen, and I thought, uh, wow, I'll follow up. I watched her pitch. I said, oh, wow, and just kept following up and uh, kept calling Jen every week, and I think Jen loved those phone calls about as much as I did. We both ran out of stuff to say all the time, but uh, um, and then, uh, uh, you know, I tried to get her to sign early, and she didn't, And but uh, we came back from a spring trip in March, and uh, I had a phone call from Jen and said she uh, – uh, if the scholarship was there, she was coming to Grand Valley, and that was just great for us. In fact, uh, went home, told my wife, we're going out for banana split because this is excellent <laughs> here. We're getting Jen coming in as a pitcher. And uh, she was she was just great. Uh, she's competitive as heck. And if you look at her record, she just didn't walk people. She struck out a bunch and didn't walk people and uh, just very successful. 
you were very successful as well. Go ahead. Yeah. Doc, uh, talk about getting to the – we've talked about this. Talk about getting to the NCAA tournament and what your philosophy was with Jen as your pitcher. And, and did you have a staff then or, or did you just rely on her? Well, when we went to the uh, NCAA tournament, the year we went to the World Series, uh, we finished third in our conference tournament. Uh, and we had another very good pitcher uh, with us at that time. And, uh, and Jen, uh, but uh, Amber Castoni was the other pitcher. But once we got into the uh, uh, regional tournament, uh, sort of made a decision. I told Amber, I said, Amber, you've done a great job this year, but we're going to put it on Jen's back here. But you help her out. She's young. Uh, you study the uh, players. And uh, Amber did a great job. She had more stats in her lap than anybody going and talked to Jen and and Jen did, uh, did, did real well. Uh, and being a sophomore, we had a game against uh, West Virginia Wesleyan, extra innings. I, don't, I think Jen probably had a no-hitter going at that time, but we didn't give her much support. And usually they come in for the offensive part, and the coach says something real great and uh, enlightening, and I was running out of things. I didn't have anything to offer. And I went the one day, and Jen says, Doc, I got it. And in no uncertain terms – she told the team, she goes, how many innings do you think I have left in my arm here? Uh, you get me uh, one run, and it'll hold up. And we exploded. We hit two home runs, and we won two to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so she was a motivator as well. I see that's carried yeah, up as an assistant coach, too. What was the experience like for you going to the College World Series? Uh, totally brand new for me. I didn't know anything about it. Uh, Luckily, I called uh, my buddy, uh, Danny Griffin at Alma. He'd been to Division Three World Series, and he said, you got the T-shirts? And I said, what T-shirts? He goes, oh, yeah, they trade T-shirts down there. I said, oh, great. So I had to run over to the bookstore and buy a bunch of T-shirts <laughs> to bring with us. But, you know, we got down there, and, uh, you know, I think our first game was against Barry and a great team, uh, and we won that game. And it was interesting down there. Uh, uniforms, we didn't have much for uniforms. Now they got maybe three sets. Uh, we had our big old woolen uniforms and we had uh, black shorts and black shirts. And basically uh, you got to choose if you lost the uh, 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 toss of the coin, you got to choose what uniform. Luckily we lost about every time. So we got to wear that uniform through the whole damn tournament uh, down there. So uh, it just worked out well. We uh, uh, just hung in there uh, and Jenny, Jenny pitched, Pitch real well. Hey, who did uh, the laundry back then? Uh, the girls did it. <laughs> the players did it. <laughs> you didn't take on uh, yeah, that responsibility as well? Yeah, well, those uniforms probably got a little right by the end of the week because we were down there for a whole week on that tournament. But it, it was just a great experience. Uh, Salem, uh, Virginia treated us very well. What an awesome experience that is. And you, you mentioned Toledo, and, of course, our listeners who know from the last couple of weeks, that's where Tim Selgo came from. And he told us on this podcast that you were kind of instrumental in getting Tim to uh, even apply for this athletic director job here, which obviously turned out to be a great success. Tell us a little bit about that from your side. Obviously, you worked at Toledo. You had some ships passing in the night with Tim, and then that turned into something pretty great. Yeah, I still remember at Toledo – um, our recruiting uh, coordinator for basketball was outside the arena. And uh, I said, Bob, what are you doing? He says, I'm waiting for this skinny kid from Pettisville that can shoot it up pretty good. And that was Tim Selgo. Uh, but Tim came in as a freshman. I had just left and went up to Grand Valley. But 
when we were looking for an athletic director after Mike had left and they said, you know anybody? And the people I had talked to down in Toledo said that Tim had done a great job down there and he would make a, a great AD at your institution. Um, so put the feelers out to see if Tim would be interested and he was and it worked out great. Doc, talk a little bit about uh, um, the transition with, with Brian Kelly and, and, and when he was hired as, as head coach and kind of how he began his career with that big win at North Dakota State. Oh, yeah, that, that, that was a great win out there. That was one of those deals. We flew out and back the same day and played the game uh, at North Dakota State. And, uh, you know, we really didn't know what to, what to expect going out there. Uh, but we, we had some talented players. Uh, I still remember Eric Lynch, who was our running back and played for the Lions after that. Um, you know, we didn't have a shoe bank back there, and that was on turf. So they were bringing their tennis shoes. And uh, uh, Eric's tennis shoes, I said, these look pretty good, Eric. He goes, hey, these are my going to church, going to school, and playing football tennis shoes. So be careful <laughs> when you cut the tape off of these things. So uh, we just, it was just a, a great game out there. The, the team played well. And, uh, you know, those are, those are uh, knowledgeable fans uh, out at uh, North Dakota. And the uh, uh, game was on. Uh, there were a lot of them that gave us a, a standing O as we walked off the field. So that's pretty, uh, pretty neat when you get that from the visiting team. So they understand. Uh, but as all things go in that game, um, I uh, screwed up our radio broadcaster, Kent Fisher. He came down, our quarterback hurt his hand, and Kent came down and said, uh, is he going to play in the second half? And he had fractured two metacarpals. And I said, no, nah, Kent, I really doubt it. So he had a great bit of information to put over the airwaves. And then <laughs> I talked to our team doctors. And I said, what about Jack? You think he can play in the second half? And they said, well, it's broken now. It's going to be broken next week, too, if he can do it. So he played the whole second half. <laughs> Kent oh, reminds me of that all the time now. So. <laughs> That's cool. well, you've always, so you've talked about going to North Dakota. You talked about going down to Elon. You had plenty of travel. And obviously, you know, 20 years ago, travel was a little bit different than it is now. Do you have any travel stories that stick out in your mind as some of either the best or worst experiences of your time at Grand Valley? Well, we went, there's a lot of them. We were going out to play uh, Northern Iowa, and we're in the middle of nowhere in Iowa, and the bus breaks down. So, and luckily there's a gas station where we pile out and everybody's sitting around trying to figure out what to do. Uh, all you got is the pig farms close that smell like heck and there's a high school football game going down the middle of the road and you can hear the PA, uh, but we, we finally did make it. And then just uh, uh, things have changed a little bit. Uh, we played that game that night and son of a gun, we had a great chance to beat Northern Iowa. was playing in the dome. We were up 21 nothing. We lost 22-21. Mm but had a uh, box lunch afterwards. And uh, I still remember Coach Harkman going through the trash, picking out the cans so we can return them and get our money on the deposit coming back. I, I don't think you'd find that now this day and age. We had another trip up north, dead of winter, uh, playing uh, Lake Superior State and coming back midway between the bridge uh, and Sault Ste. Marie bus conks out on the side of the road. Uh, it's it's below zero. It's freezing. There's no heat on the bus, and I was sort of sitting in the back. And then I think we sat on a road for about an hour, and all of a sudden, well, they're going to tow us for a while. Uh, we go, oh, okay, great. 
So, and they're sending a bus up from Petoskey uh, to pick us up. So they tow us for a while. Uh, and then uh, they go, oh, the bus, other buses here will switch. Well, we get out and I look, and the thing that was towing us was with a Jeep with a rope towing a bus. <laughs> that probably was not the smartest thing in the world to do. But, uh, you know, we did. We got there. And then uh, I was sitting behind the bus driver and everyone else pretty much asleep. And he said, hey, just between you, me, and the mile marker, I've been going 13 hours straight. I just got in. Can you uh, talk to me all the way home? I said, yeah, I can try. That's for sure. <laughs> He was struggling. I think sometimes we went more left of center than right of center, but we made it back. We got back at uh, nine o'clock in the morning uh, on that trip. So yeah, there are a lot, a lot of memorable trips. All right. Memorable coaches, Doc. I know you've told some great stories about this, but uh, Tom Villamere, longtime basketball coach. Um, Tom liked to uh, smoke cigarettes a little bit, but uh, um, talk about the times in basketball. I know he was a legendary coach and, and, and coach Villamere, I know, I know you were instrumental in keeping him alive through several um, medical uh, procedures. Yeah, it was, it was never a dull moment with Coach Villamere on the sideline. And uh, when we'd go up on the UP trip, uh, our assistant coach, Bill Springer, who taught school, a lot of times couldn't make the trip. So I would get the dubious honor of sitting next to Coach Villamere on the bench and trying to keep th things under control. Um, and I swear my blood pressure went up numerous points during those times. One time at Lake Superior, um, the scorer's table had a phone on it, and he's picking it up and is ready to fling it onto the ground. I'm yelling, Tom, no, no, don't do that. He goes, yeah, but they're cheating us. I said, don't leave the phone on the table. <laughs> Luckily, he did, but uh, he, he was an intense individual on that uh, with the game, so, but, uh, but he could coach him up. He could coach him up well. Yeah, and that's – Tim mentioned you worked with some great coaches, and I think the passion of the coaches, especially during the Tim Selgo's tenure when some of those long-time coaches became a thing, and you being a part of an athletic department that had such long-tenured employees both as support staff and as coaches seemed to make a pretty special culture. When you look at it as somebody who was one of each, both an administrative supporter and a head coach, what, did that, what was that culture like for you during those 24 years? Oh, it was great. You know, I, I, you know as an athletic trainer uh, – you're in the background, but, but uh, you're service-oriented. And my thing was I want to do the best I could for those coaches to be as successful as they could possibly be. They had enough pressure, um, and I, I wanted to do everything I possibly could do for them. I remember one time the basketball team's going up north. Our starting guard had sprained an ankle. And at that time you left I, probably on Wednesday because at that time you played Thursday, Saturday, Monday in the UP. What a great trip. Uh, and uh, by that time with both men and women's team, you're ready to go to each other's throat by the time you get back. But uh, a basketball player sprained an ankle, and I didn't think he'd be able to play up there. Uh, first game for sure, and then probably not uh, on Saturday. So I uh, kept treating him, and the ankle was coming around pretty good. And I remember uh, on Friday I called Coach Villamere, and I said, hey, I think Daryl might be ready to play Saturday. Would you play him? He goes, yeah, I said, all right, I'll hop in my car. So I hit had a basketball player, my wife, myself, we drove in the middle of the winter up to northern Michigan so he could play, and he did. And he had a pretty good game up there. So uh, um, always a, a great trips up there. Uh, I'll give you one long story. Uh, I taught on uh, Wednesday, so I could not make the trip with the team when they left Wednesday. 
So I said, I'll be real smart and I'll fly up there on, a, on Thursday. So I'm going to fly. The, the, the weather's not great, not great at all. Uh, I fly from Grand Rapids to Lansing, Lansing, Detroit. We get to Detroit and uh, I'm ready to go on the, the uh, tarmac or on the uh, walkway out. No walkway. We're on a small plane. You got to go outside down onto the. Uh, <laughs> airport and walk upstairs get in the plane and we're about ready to go and the uh, pilot or it said well we got to wait for the fuel truck and then he said we got to wait longer they sent the wrong fuel truck out here and it just so happened it was winter carnival weekend at tech that weekend and some of the alums were uh, at plane and the stewardess said well uh, it's our fault on that so i'm going to open the bar up to you guys no cost whoa they had a great time <laughs> well we finally got off Finally got off, landed in Pelston, let one passenger off, nobody on, and then we're uh, uh, flying to Marquette, and the pilot says, well, they're at uh, minimum visibility, but I think we can get in there pretty good. I'm not a great flyer. I thought, oh, this is terrific. <laughs> so then I, uh, uh, we get there, and the pilot says, I'm going to go in and check the weather uh, in Houghton, or in Hancock, and uh, he comes back out to the plane and says, well, right now it's minimum visibility, but we're going to give it a shot. <laughs> this is great. And the stewardess, instead of running down all her prelim stuff they have to give, says, buckle them up. We're taking off. And uh, we landed in Houghton, and uh, the bus driver picked me up. I got there. As soon as I get to the hotel, one of our uh, female basketball players is just sick as a dog. So, um I uh, called the trainer at Michigan Tech. He said their doctor would be in. They'll take a look at her. So went over the women's team, got them going, had my student trainer with her. Uh, and then the men came over, and I said, well, we'll go back and, and get this player. So I called her room, and no answer. I go, oh, my God, what's wrong with her? So I called the front desk. I said, oh, we moved her to another room. We bring her down. Long story short, we get her in, and she's got to be admitted to uh, – uh, hospital in Hancock. They're not sure what the heck's going on with her. Um, so we play the game Thursday. Uh, she's still in Friday. I've got to stay overnight in uh, Hancock. Uh, and then the doctor said, well, I, I, we should be able to let her release her on Saturday. So I uh, uh, go pick her up Saturday, waiting for the doctor, waiting for the doctor. Finally comes in. He said, sorry, I'm late. We had a big hockey win last night. Party was pretty good afterwards. Uh, <laughs> so he discharges her. Uh, I pick her up, and we start heading to uh, Marquette, which is 100 miles, snowstorm all the way. Uh, but we get there and uh, hustle in, get in there, and I was there, uh, get the men ready for their game, come out after the games are over, at dead battery, left the lights on in the car. <laughs> I went, went to their trainer and I said, Reg, he called their uh, security. They couldn't do it because of some liability thing. So he sees uh, uh, Coach Brown, his wife is there, and he said, hey, uh, you think you can uh, jump Doug's car? She said, well, let me get my husband. Here it is. We had just beaten Northern Michigan a basketball game, and here's their head coach out jumping my car, <laughs> cold as hell, middle of the winter, and, uh, you know, that's, that's the UP for you. But uh, that was another interesting trip.
you know what? I can never complain about a UP trip ever again after hearing that one. My goodness, that has <laughs> a little bit of everything. And that's why you're a Hall of Famer. And I, I have one more question for you. I'm see if Tim does as well. But my last question for you, Doc, I, mean, I touched on it at the beginning, you getting inducted into the Hall of Fame last year. Congratulations, by the way. What does that mean to you? Uh, it's, it's great. As I said before, it means that I worked here a long time. Longevity paid off. But uh, <laughs> it was excellent and really appreciated it. Tim, you got any other questions? No, it's been fun talking to you, Doc, and uh, we appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. What a great story to end that on, though, Tim, talking about going to the UP on a little hopper jet. I've never had to travel on a point where an airplane made seven different stops on the way to its final destination. So, boy, one of the big things I took away as a 30-year-old is how much travel's changed in the last few decades. Well, I worked at Michigan Tech from 1994 to 97, so I did some of those uh, uh, flights in terms of – when you, <laughs> you're not flying, you're taking, you're landing a few times in the UP. If you take off from Houghton Hancock, you're landing in Marquette and then Escanaba and then either Detroit or Minneapolis. So, um, and, and there was only, uh, I believe it was United um, or American, and those were the only two really flights you could take. And so there was no easy stop. You were on a puddle jumper and you were landing like you were landing in the bush of Alaska, literally in on snow-covered uh, um, landing r- runways. So there's no easy way. But what Doc said in the UP, um, th- the people are so friendly because you need your neighbor at some point in time. I mean, like if you're if if your car stalls in the UP on the side of the road, not one car is going to drive by you without stopping to help. The first car that pulls up, they're going to say, "Hey, you need help." And 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 that's the way UP is because you need your neighbors, and you better be friendly to your neighbors because you're going to need them or they're going to need you. So um, n- not surprised that the uh, that the basketball coach and his wife uh, gave Doc the jump. Despite the fact that the Lakers had just beaten yeah. him not an hour <laughs> earlier. But a big thanks to Doc for spending some time with us sharing those stories. Again, all of our guest interviews here on the Anchor Up podcast are brought to you by Alliance Beverage. Coors Light reminding you to drink responsibly, distributed locally in by Alliance Beverage. All right, let's get to some segments now. We already gave you your Lakers Spotlight of the Week, but now it's time for your Team of the Week, which is brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. Here for you now more than ever, confidence comes with every card. And this week we go back to the mid-2000s and highlight the 2007-2008 men's basketball team what a year that squad had. They went 36-1, and not losing until the Elite Eight, led by Bean, LJ Kilgore, and Jason Jamerson. The team dominated the GLIAC to sweep the regular season and tournament titles. They won the GLIAC tournament championship in a really close six-point win over Finley, then turn around in a packed GVSU Fieldhouse Arena. I've seen some pictures from that game. There was not an empty seat in the house. The upper deck of the opposite side of the benches was pulled all the way out filled to the brim, and the Lakers beat Finley by 17 points the second time around to go to the Elite Eight where they would finally lose a game, but they had a scoring margin of plus 20 that season and held opponents to just 54 points a game. So that Rick Wesley defense-first mindset really played out well, and of course having a guy like Bean doesn't hurt in that regard. Well, yeah, that team was loaded. That team was loaded. Calista Zizuku uh, was just a phenomenal player. Jason Jamerson, LJ Kilgore, Nick Freer, a transfer from Eastern Michigan. He had Pete Trammell, um, uh, Jason, or Justin Ringler. And, and that that team was so you know they were seasoned. They had a great year the year before, uh, and and they just they just you know you could extend your defense with LJ, and he was an unbelievable defender. Because if they got by LJ, guess what was waiting in the wings? 
bean. I was just ready to <laughs> swat your shot, and uh, the team could score inside, outside. They could slow it down. They could speed it up. You know, and earlier that year, um, they go to a nationally ranked Michigan State uh uh, Breslin Arena and beat Michigan State in, in double overtime. That 07-08 team, uh, Mitch did some great research, uh, made it to the Sweet 16, lost to a Memphis-led Derrick Rose team. Um, in that game, uh, L.J. Kilgore was phenomenal defensively. It was, it, it was interesting. That game was played on a Friday night because we were playing at Saginaw in Gleick football the next day. So we drove down for the game, um, went to the Michigan State game. It was double overtime. The officials, the year before, um, Michigan State beat Grand Valley at Van Andel Arena in a game that the Lakers led in the second half by as many as 11 or 12 points. And the officials were like, uh-uh, this isn't going to happen. So they're playing uh, Michigan State at the, at the Breslin Center, and um, it, the clock is winding down up to uh, Drew Neitzel has the ball. Uh, L.J. Kilgore has him pinned against half court, and L.J. actually steals the ball. They go for it, and they call the foul on L.J., Drew Neitzel makes two free throws to send the game in overtime, and I thought, well, there's no way we're going to win this game in overtime, the <laughs> officials. But I'll tell you what, what a great job. Uh, um, Justin Ringler with, uh, I believe, 16 points off the bench. Um, Jason Jamers with 19 points. And that team was so much fun to watch, and uh, that just uh, epitomized that team uh, beating Michigan State um, in that exhibition game, and uh, it, was, it was a great year. Well, we just tag-teamed it because the team of the week is the 07-08 men's basketball team brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield. I believe, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, that was your moment of the week, the win over Michigan State, unless you got another one for us. Um, actually, the mo no, that that was not my moment of the week. Even better. So I, that was just another yeah. – that was a great moment within a season yeah. that we highlight. So and what an awesome start to that. You know, And they started with the win over Michigan State. Then they go down to Florida for the Wide World of Sports Tournament. That was, What a fun year that must have been to be a Grand Valley State Laker. It was. It was It was a lot of fun. And, uh, and, and I'll tell you what was fun, being around those guys. Um, Kosi Suzuku, I mean, Laker fans got to know him over the four years that he was here. And just a fun individual to be around. Jason Jamerson, um, Nick Freer, and the group of guys just—they gelled so well together. Um, and and you know it, it really was. Um, Kevin Luke, the head men's coach at, at Michigan Tech, who's been there for 26, 27 years, said that that team was probably Finley won a national championship um, a couple years later. Uh, but Kevin Luke uh, said that. That Grand Valley team was probably the best team ever to play in the GLIAC. He, he thought from top to bottom, their scoring margin, the way they dominated teams, um, he, he said they're the best that, that he's seen. Well, Kevin Luke, certainly a uh, historian of this league from the coaching standpoint, no doubt. But okay, so if that's not your great moment in Laker history, the Randy, Randy Katterberg Agency brings us this moment. Well, uh, 2001, the Laker football team who had been to the NCAA playoffs a number of times but had never broken through. Um, just always one and done. I mean, losing to Indiana PA, losing to really good teams, but they just couldn't get over the hump. Well, in 2001, um, uh, the Lakers were undefeated and, and were just dominating teams. You know, led Minnesota Crookston in the season over 56 to nothing at the half. And, and well, that team faced some, some adversity. Playing Bloomsburg, who lost in the championship game the year before to Delta State, Bloomsburg and the and the Eastern team always were seen as the better team. Well, they come to Grand Valley in 2001 for that first round playoff game, and uh, the Lakers defeated them that game. It was the first ever playoff win, NCAA playoff win for Grand Valley State, 42 to 14. Um, but in that game, Kurt Ains 
shredded his knee on a quarterback sneak, um, uh, leading 28-14 at the half. Brian Kelly was trying to push forward for one more score. Um, I, I, it was at the 21-yard line, needed about a yard for a first down, ran a quarterback sneak. Kurt got caught in the, in, in, in the pile, and somebody came in, hit his knee, and shredded it. It was a bad situation. Uh, but, you know, that, that team persevered and, and made it to a championship game. So winning that first-ever playoff game was huge. And the way that Brian Kelly r- rallied that group, um, and they, they went on to beat Saginaw Valley 33-30 in the second-round playoff game, beat Catawba uh, 34-16, and then lost to North Dakota in the championship game 17-14. North Dakota um, scored with 29 seconds left. But winning that first playoff game was huge for the school. And it was a, it was a great moment, and you know there was it was a bittersweet victory because you knew you lost Kurt Ains for the rest of the year. He went on to finish second in the Harlan Hill voting that year, uh, the most points ever by a second place finisher in the Harlan Hill voting. And the reason he finished second is because a bunch of Southern schools didn't even vote for him. He was clearly the best player, received more first place votes um, than the winner, um, Dusty Bonner, who played at Valdosta State. Um, but uh, so it was a bittersweet victory, but that. That victory is a, was a, you know, kind of where Grand Valley State football turned the corner to that, where they are today. That great moment in Laker history brought to you by the Randy Catterberg Agency. And a lot of the chatter I've seen on social media when we highlight the 2002 team, the 2003 team, a lot of people are quick to bring up, hey, I think that 2001 team might have been our best team out there. If Kurt Ains stays healthy, that team oh. is for sure on the track to at least have a chance at winning that national championship in 2001. That's a great moment. Thank you for bringing that to us. And speaking of bringing it to you, the Anchor Up podcast is brought to you in part by Uccellos, where great food and sports come together by DTE Energy, Know Your Own Power, and by Mervine Beverage, Bud Light, reminding you to drink responsibly. Well, before we get out of here, we do have some corrections for you. Our statistician, Mitch Ashcraft, was able to go back and take a look, and as it turns out, Andre Iguodala drafted out of Arizona in 2004, but I believe he was the ninth overall pick, so that's where the nine might have come into my head and then he was also on those four straight teams with the Warriors he did take a gap year but signed with the Heat midway through this season before the shutdown came so he was on a sabbatical but he played last year with that Warriors team that lost to the Raptors so there you go five straight finals for Andre Iguodala so there's a couple of corrections for you. Thank you very much, Mitch, as always. I nice appreciate Mitch. you keeping us on our toes. And, Tim, before, we'll also remind you that the Anchor Up podcast brought to you by Fox Motors partially. But other than that, I think that pretty much wraps up our show this week. That was a great, great third episode. Uh, enjoyed doing it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to talk to guys like Doc and to go back in time and listen to those stories. And, and he only gave us a, a small nugget of the stories of oh, which Doc nuts. Woods has. And, uh, you know, it's fun talking to those guys and talking about how, how times have changed in, in terms of just travel, the day-to-day operations and how they operated back then, um, which, you know, a lot of people don't see the behind-the-scenes uh, stuff that goes on. Yeah, and, you know, going forward, we're really excited when sports start up again to bring you up-to-date information and keep you on track with what's going on in GVSU athletics and keep the present at the forefront. But I think it's kind of nice right now. We certainly hope you, Laker Nation, is enjoying it as well of while we have this pause that nobody planned on to be able to kind of go back, take a look at where we're coming from, where we are, and where we're headed. So the Anchor Up podcast, big thanks to everyone who's tuned in these first few weeks and a lot of fun. Big thanks to Tim. Big thanks to Doc Woods as well. And, of course, Mitch Ashcraft. My name is Jake Levy. We'll talk to you next week. Have a great Thursday, everybody. Thursday, everybody.